If I could add my welcome, you've got three welcomes this morning. You've got a welcome from Meg, you've had a welcome from Dan. If I could add my welcome as well. If you're just visiting and you're trying to figure out who everybody is, my name's Nick. I'm the pastor here. One of the great privileges of my life after being a Christian, being married to Karen and being uh, dad to Emily and Zoe is to be pastor here at Southside. Um, And yeah, it's fantastic to see you. We we really do hope that you will sense not only God's welcome in this place, but God's welcome through his people. It's amazing when we think about the fact that God humbles himself in becoming a man in Jesus. If you don't know the Christian story, uh, we believe that God became literally like us in every single way except for sin and, and came into human time and space about 2,000 years ago in Israel and that he continues to live in and through his people. Jesus, the, the physical Jesus is seated in heaven now. One day we will share in that physical resurrection. The gospel is great news Not only good news, it is great news for everything, for all of creation, for all of humanity. And and one day we are going to share in that as well. And until that day, we seek to live for Jesus. The only thing I want to change from what Dan said earlier is I don't just want to warmly encourage you to go out and get your children in the song at the end of communion. I want to say, go and get your children. Okay, it's not a warm encouragement. It's not an optional thing. We have incredible King's Kids teams. We have incredible youth teams. But they want to come back in for communion and they want to be part of our gathering. So go and get them. Okay, it's not a warm encouragement. It is a strong word of discipline from a, from a strong leader under Jesus. So, no, I'm just, listen. so at the moment we're, we're doing a series in Mark's Gospel. It's called Re-Jesus. Um, I'll say a little bit about it in a moment's time. Somebody said to me yesterday, I need to change my version of the Bible because it is, it sometimes it's a little bit too gender specific in terms of, and I know it's about 10 years old and so there's a lot of he instead of we or they and, and sometimes that's fine in the Bible and other times it isn't. I also need to change my Bible because this is Mark chapter 7 in my Bible and it's just falling apart now. So if you want to turn to Mark chapter 7, it means I've not got as much to carry around with me this morning. This is what Mark writes. The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered round Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were unclean, that is unwashed. And then Mark gives this little, it's in brackets in your Bible, and, it, and it's one of these clues that Mark's audience, the people who he's writing for, are people like us. In other words, not Jews. Because Mark explains what this all means. And he says, The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash, and they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. So, the Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus, Why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with unclean hands? He replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you lovely people. No, Jesus, you know, I just said there, you, you need to go directly out and get, your, and get your kids, okay? Sometimes it's all right to be direct with people. Sometimes we see that in Jesus. He says, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites, as it is written. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. 
They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. And then he says to these people who would have seen themselves as so close to God and people whose intention it was. We mustn't be too hard on them. People whose intention it was to walk closely with the God of Israel. Jesus calls them hypocrites. And then he says this to them. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to the traditions of men. People, sorry. And he said to them, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and anyone who curses his father or mother must be put to death. But you say that if a man says to his father or mother, whatever help you might otherwise have received from me is Corban, that is a gift devoted to God. So in other words, if they had like a house or something, and they might have used their house as, as a way of income to support their parents or, or, or a job or a field or something like that, and crops and those sorts of things. So what they said is, actually, this field belongs to God now. And so then they would say, because the field belongs to God, I don't have to give money from the crop, from the harvest to my parents. And they would say... That that honouring God supersedes honouring their parents and honouring their parents. And what Jesus is saying is that's absolute rubbish. You know, it would be a a bit like me saying, do you know what? I I am going to honour Jesus. I am going to serve Jesus. And if my wife and kids have to have to suffer the fallout of that, then so be it. But R. T. Kendall, I think it is, says that if you failed as a husband or as a parent, you've already failed as a pastor. Okay, and so that's in, in, in a way what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, uh, then you, uh, you say that if, you, if uh, what you've received from me is Corbin, that is a gift devoted to God, then you no longer let him do anything for his father or mother. Thus, you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And that isn't the only thing. You do many things like that. Again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, listen to me everyone and understand this nothing outside a man can make him unclean by going into him rather it is what comes out of a man that makes him unclean after he had left the crowd and entered the house his disciples asked him about this parable are you so dull he asked again Jesus being incredibly pastoral Uh, are you so dull don't you see that nothing that enters a man from the outside can make him unclean For it doesn't go into his heart, but into his stomach, and then out of his body. In saying this, Mark tells us, Jesus declared all foods clean. He went on, what comes out of a man is what makes him unclean. For from within, out of men's hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and make a man unclean. Jesus left that place and went to the vicinity of Tyre. Now, I just want to, again, just drop in. Tyre is a place where uh, it wasn't an, Is- uh, an Israelite place. It was a Gentile place. It was where non-Israelites lived. And this is a challenging little bit of scripture that we're about to read just here. Because essentially, how some people would suggest, or, or what some people would suggest is happening here, is that Jesus is being racist. Okay, and we'll get to that bit in a minute. But they would say Jesus is a racist. Jesus goes into a Gentile area and he slags a woman off because of her ethnic background. And, and 
as you read through this, you can kind of understand why people might want to say that. But we have to take that in the context that, as I've already said, Jesus was like us in every way except without sin. And therefore, Jesus can't be being racist, okay? Does that make sense? So that's my deduction. He can't be sinning in what he says here. So what I want you to try and imagine as we read this next wee bit is Jesus sparkling his eye having a wee laugh with somebody, or just kind of pushing her a little bit, and her responding. So this is what happened. He entered into a house and did not want anyone to know it, yet he could not keep his presence secret. In fact, as soon as she heard about him, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an evil spirit came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek, born in Syrian Phoenicia. She begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. She's not a Jew, First, let the children, in other words, first let the Jews eat all they want, he told her. For it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to their dogs. In other words, you are a dog, you are not of Israel. And the woman, who could take incredible offense at this, if she thought that Jesus was really, you know, being deadly serious to her, comes back with this brilliant response. Yes, Lord, she replied, but even the dogs under the table, eat the children's crumbs. It's meant to be a little bit funny. Then he told her, for such a reply, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. She went home and found her child lying on the bed and the demon gone. Then Jesus left the vicinity of Tyre and went through Sidon down to the Sea of Galilee and into the region of the Decapolis. Remember we had the Decapolis a few weeks ago when we had the demon, when we had the legion of demons cast out of the man. And he said, go into the Decapolis, go into the ten cities and tell them everything that God has done for you. So now, again, the scripture doesn't tell us this exactly, but what, I, what I've been imagining all week as I've been looking at this is Jesus is now going back to that region where he sent the healed demon-possessed man in to proclaim the goodness of God. And remember, he got kicked out of that region originally. They said, get out of here. And so Jesus left. He goes back into the region of Decapolis and it says this, there some people brought to him a man who was deaf and could hardly talk and they begged him to place his hand on the man. After he took him aside away from the crowd, Jesus put his fingers into the man's ears. Then he spat and touched the man's tongue. He looked up to heaven and with a sigh said to him, Ephatha, which means be opened. At this, the man's ears were opened, his tongue was loosened, and he began to speak plainly. Jesus commanded them not to tell anyone, but the more he did, remember he is in the Decapolis where they have asked him to leave because they do not like what he is doing a few chapters previously. But the more he did so, the more they kept talking about it, people were overwhelmed with amazement. He has done everything well, they said. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. It's amazing, isn't it? It, Like, even just, I could sit down now, even just those few little drop-ins, I hope that they have helped you to understand something that we have in black and white a little bit better. We just have these words on the text, and they're only words if the Holy Spirit doesn't bring them to life. They're only words if we don't remember that this black and white was taking place in full technicolor, in full color. That is what the scriptures are teaching us about. There is nothing wrong. Let me say this, there is nothing wrong with trying to get your head around these things that bring the scriptures 
to life for us. Oh yeah, I've heard of the Decapolis before. What happened last time he was there? Look at how different it is now. There's nothing wrong with realizing what was Jesus doing? Was he really calling her a dog? Was he really being racist? Well, no, he wasn't because Jesus can't, or Jesus doesn't sin. He chooses not to sin. He can't sin. And so what was actually going on here? And it was actually the woman's incredible insight into that little riddle that Jesus told her. Please, 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 if nothing else, don't just read scripture uh, without putting it into color, taking it off the black and white of a page and saying, who are you, Jesus? And that, and that is what this series is all about. This series is called Re-Jesus, for those of you who are visiting this morning. And, and I keep thinking, do I need to keep saying this every week? But I think I do because I see different faces every week. But this series is called Re-Jesus. And it's called Re-Jesus because it is about saying, uh, it's, it's regarding Jesus. It's about Jesus. Like, uh, like at the top of a letter, you'll have re your overdue council tax. Um, and that's only half a joke as I look at my wife. Um, but, and, or, and so it's regarding Jesus. Um, but it's also, about, it's also called re-Jesus because it's about re-Jesusing ourselves. It's about saying, where have we got Jesus wrong? Where have we put Jesus in a box? And I think that this is the perfect chapter to emphasize this point because, of course, Jesus says to them, you have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to the traditions of men. And that, is, that like summarizes the point behind this series in, in, in a verse. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding to the traditions of men. And, and what I, my hypothesis is, what my belief from my own life is, and therefore what I assume is the truth in all of your lives as well, unless I'm the only freak here. Um, but, but my hypothesis is this, we all build up our traditions, and in building up our traditions, let go of something of the truth of God to the extent that actually what we have is something that is actually only semi-Christian. Or even not Christian at all, if being semi-Christian is even possible. And so what we've been doing is we've been working so far through Mark and saying, God, who are you really? If Jesus reveals everything of God to us, which I believe he does, and I know many of you would believe he does. If Jesus reveals everything of God to us, because Jesus says, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. So if that is true, if you believe that is true, where have you put God in a box? Where have I put God in a box? How have we collectively put God in a box? And where do we need to change? And I just want to launch off with a few Jesus is statements this morning. Not just launch off, we'll finish with it as well. But launch into this really quickly. And the first thing that I want to re-emphasize at this point, you might say, well, we had this in week one. And I've got a lovely little thing on my computer with all the different points that I've made so far through this series. And I know you've had this one before, but Mark highlights it again. And, and, and we need to remember it again. And it, and it is this, Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is God. Jesus is Lord. And, and when we read that account of the unblocking of the deaf man's ears, it, you know, this is where I take that point from. As we read this point that Jesus unblocks the deaf man's ears, we see that Jesus is Messiah. And the reason we see this is because if you didn't realize already, what Jesus is quoting, what, um, 
sorry, not quoting, the word for deaf and mute that is used in Mark chapter 7 is used only one other time in the Greek translation of the Bible. And it is in Isaiah chapter 35 and a few verses there. I just want to read them to you. It says this, Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand will become a pool. The thirsty ground bubbling springs. In the haunts where jackals once lay, grass and reeds and papyrus will grow. And a highway will be there. It will be called the way of holiness. It will be for those who walk on that way. The unclean will not journey on it. Wicked fools will not go about on it. No lion will be there, nor any ravenous beast. They will not be found there, but only the redeemed will walk there. And those the Lord has rescued will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them. And sorrow and sighing will flee away. What is Isaiah looking forward to there? This is a real question. What's he looking forward to? Okay, don't worry. It's, it was a hypothetical question. Isaiah is looking forward to new creation. Isaiah is looking forward to the day when the Messiah comes in all his fullness. We get echoes of revelation and, and, and the fact that in revelation it says, one day a day is coming when there'll be no more mourning, no more tears, no more sadness, no more crying, when everything is going to be made right. We have echoes of revelation in that Isaiah passage. But Isaiah is saying, one day the Messiah is going to come and and deaf ears are going to be opened and blind eyes are going to see and, 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 and he's talking about it from a spiritual perspective he is going to say that everybody is going to see the Lord one day when Jesus comes back and makes everything right in other words to use a slightly theological phrase Isaiah's passage in, in chapter 35 of Isaiah is a messianic passage it's a passage looking forward to the Messiah and then here in Mark chapter 7 we have the same word used of the deaf and the mute guy. And, so, and what Mark is wanting us to realize is, yes, there was a physical healing. And we'll talk about this in a moment's time. But I am trying to communicate, says Mark, to the people who are reading my gospel, that this Messiah of Isaiah chapter 35, who the Jews are looking forward to, is the person who is standing before this deaf guy in Mark chapter 7. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Lord. That is exciting, church. Jesus, Jesus is the Messiah. And, and I was thinking, well, you know, they've heard this so many times. They know this. Uh, I know this. But the truth of it is, do we walk in it? And that's why I was thinking, you know, about the best sports teams in the world. And I was thinking that they just practice again and again and again and again the same thing, the most basic things. And I was trying to think of an analogy for this. And a guy came over and spoke to me in Pandora this morning, literally this morning, an hour ago. And he came and he told me this story. You'll all have heard it before but this it illustrates it perfectly and and it was that it was some kind of guy and he was going to walk across the Niagara Falls on a tightrope and and he stood in front of the crowd who were there to watch him I think it's true but I was told it in Pandora so it's definitely true um and he stood there and he's at the edge of this tightrope and he says to the crowd, do you believe that I can walk across the Niagara Falls? And they said, yes, we believe that you can do it. And then he put a blindfold on and he said, do you still believe that I can walk on a tightrope across the Niagara Falls? And they said, yes, we believe it. And then he got a wheelbarrow out and he said, one of you get into the wheelbarrow. 
And sometimes we're a little bit like that in our faith, aren't we? Yes, I believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Yes, I believe that Jesus is the Lord. Yes, I would follow Jesus wherever he leads me. I would do anything for Jesus. But then when Jesus asks us to get into the wheelbarrow, we might be a little bit more hesitant. And that's why it is so important again and again and again. I remember when we were doing our series uh, earlier in the year on, on church, on some values that might inform us as a church. And every single week, the first bit of application was this. Gaze on God. Gaze on God. Gaze on God. Gaze on God. Because you can't gaze at God enough. You can't get a big enough vision of who God is. And you can't remember how important it is that Jesus is Messiah. And that Messiah calls for complete obedience enough. If all we ever thought of of Jesus was this. He is Messiah. He is Lord. He asks for everything of me. All of me. That would be enough. And here we are, Mark chapter 7, almost halfway through the gospel. And we have this reminder as we look back to Isaiah chapter 35. Jesus is the Messiah. So Jesus is the Messiah, but also Jesus isn't into keeping up appearances. I wonder how many of you uh, could relate to this. Um, I'm told it happens in a lot of marriages, but um, I don't know why Karen's laughing. Um, but you're having an argument, okay? It could be on the way to church. You're having a blazing row or just before you come into church. And then you walk into church and you have just been hurling whatever it might happen to be at your spouse or at your children or something like that. And then you walk into church and Meg asks me how I am. I'm, I'm great, Meg. How are you? And I walk into church and I've refused to give my wife a hug. Uh, but I go up to Morag and I give Morag a big hug. And then I get home and Karen says to me, How can you be so nice to everybody else? I remember when I was growing up, actually, not just because she's here this morning, but my mum used to say to me, people tell me you're such a nice boy, and I just don't know who they're talking about. But, but, and, and the thing is that we're so good at that, aren't we? We're so good at keeping up appearances. Who wants to have a row in the aisle of Tesco when you can have an even better one when you get home? And what this passage is, is reminding us in Jesus' encounter with the Pharisees is that he doesn't care about keeping up appearances. You see, the, the, the Pharisees were keeping up, and I can see husbands and wives already starting to debate this one, but... Um, but What's going on with the Pharisees is they were experts and they wanted to know God, okay? Do not be too harsh on them. They wanted to help people grow in relationship with God. Do not be too harsh on them. But what they were expert at doing was making sure that everything on the outside looked great. So we read in one of the other Gospels about how they're like whitewashed tombs. I think it's in Luke's Gospel. And he's saying, and Luke says, you know, you're like a whitewashed tomb. It looks fantastic on the inside. And, and this is something we can only really get in the first century context. It doesn't mean as much to us. But if you roll that stone away it's going to stink we see that in Lazarus they're going oh you don't want to go in there Jesus because it's three days since he died and he's wrapped in cloth and it's and it's pretty warm here and he's going to be stinking 
And what Jesus says to the Pharisees and what Jesus says to people who only care about the outside is, 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 is that is completely wrong. Jesus says, look after the inside and the outside will look after itself. Look after the inside of the cup is another picture that Jesus uses and the outside will look, uh, will look after itself. I came across this quote during the week. The church needs reminding again that it can be correct in outward form and theology but not have the spirit of Christ. How damning a word is that? Goodness comes from inner purity, a life transformed within, rather than from the pure observance of rules and doctrines. But you see, I think that the longer that we follow Jesus in our current in our current church culture, our current church context, the longer we follow Jesus, the better we get at putting on this outward facade. So like I used to rock up at church uh, like stinking of alcohol and, and, and whatever had happened the night before and I, and I used to kind of, and when people said, how are you? I'd say, well, I'm pretty today, you know, or whatever it happened to be because I was a new Christian and I didn't realize that you had to put on a facade. But then as the longer I've been a Christian, the longer I've been following Jesus, the more important I've realized realized it is to actually pretend that everything is fine. I, I might be missing something here, but you know, I went to a, a fantastic minister's retreat uh, earlier this week, and the one thing that I wanted to know, okay, and I was, sat, I was fortunate enough to be sat at a table with some leaders of some of the most influential churches in Scotland, having the biggest impacts in their community in Scotland, and the thing that I wanted to know is, you, you guys look great on the surface, but do you feel like your feet are going a million miles an hour under the water as well? Because I do. You know, I think that in some ways I have kind of can give across quite a good impression. But I feel like that duck with my feet going a million miles an hour or that person who's just stumbling from one thing to another and by the grace of God he, he continues to use me. We have got so good at putting up a facade. And yet what Jesus says to the Pharisees is, I don't care about the outward appearance. I care deeply about the heart. In Luke's gospel we read, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. You'll all know the proverb, Proverbs 4.23. Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. And Psalm 119, one of my favorite uh, bits of scripture. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. You all look amazing this morning. Brilliant, fantastic, beautiful. But what's going on on the inside? As followers of Jesus, I think we so quickly take so much notice of the outside. And I'm not saying it isn't important. Jesus calls for transformation. And transformation will lead to lead inner transformation will lead to outward transformation. Absolutely, it must. If it's a genuine encounter with God, I absolutely believe that. And yet as a church, and I don't just mean Southside here, but as a church uh, in this land at this time, we, we can so easily be seen to be focusing on outward things, outward signs of rightness with God, when we miss the fact that we could have so many things going on on the inside. I, I've used this quote before, uh, statistic before, but I feel it's just so important because it's something that dehumanizes everybody involved in it. But the statistic is this, that in churches, up to 
almost 50% of men, and I don't know what the f statistic is for women, I'm not pretending this is a male-only problem, but up to 50% of men are addicted to porn. Up to 50% of men in churches. It dehumanizes them. It dehumanizes the women and the men who, are they, who they are watching when they look at it. And yet, that could be all of you, or it could be none of you. It could be me this morning. And yet, you'll never know it, and I may never know it about you. And yet, what we would seem to suggest is, well, if that's your problem, and it happens in a dark room in your house at some point, or on your, or on your phone, or if greed is your problem, I might never know about it. We might never know about it. And it isn't that we all have to know exactly what is going on in each other's lives. Don't get me wrong. Or anger might be your thing. It, you know, there are so many different things. Lust might be your thing. There are so many different things it could, it could be. But what we worry about most is the, is, is the outward appearance rather than the heart. Heart. And what Jesus is saying is flip that completely the other way round. Deal with the heart and the outward appearance will take care of itself. And so, and so simply the challenge uh, that I am taking from this is what are those things? You know, I got up yesterday morning, I was a right moody old so-and-so. Genuinely, like it took a walk on the beach and, and a word off my dog to me to, to get me. And, and No, but I was. And and it's important that you know that. It's important that you know that because I'm just one of you walking along this, this path together. But you know, I would never dream of rocking up here like that. Never dream of it. My wife can take it. My girls can take it. But not you guys. Because we worry so much about the outward appearance when God looks on the heart. And so I just want to ask this one question and it is this. Where are you Simply keeping up appearances. Where are you simply keeping up appearances? Because Jesus isn't into that. He's into transformation starting on the inside that brings out who you truly are and how fully human you can be in him rather than that facade. Where do you put your Sunday best on, so to speak? When your heart is far from him. So Jesus is the Messiah. He isn't into keeping up appearances. He cares deeply about the heart. And then the next thing is this. Jesus holds lightly to tradition. And I use that word lightly on purpose. Because it is not to say that Jesus doesn't have tradition. Jesus does have tradition. Earlier in the gospel we read that phrase. Where it says that, uh, that on the Sabbath. Jesus went into the synagogue. As was his custom. And, and I've kind of interpreted custom there. As in a sense tradition. So in a way that is Jesus tradition it had become his custom to do it it had become a bit of a tradition in Jesus life and so what this point is not saying is that tradition is all bad tradition is not all bad there are things that we learn from and through tradition that can be absolutely fantastic things but the point of this is that it is does our tradition measure up marry up hold up against scripture and what we read in this passage here is that no it doesn't so the Pharisees who set up these rules about washing their hands when they came out of the marketplace before they would eat. And the reason for that was because the Old Testament talks about um, purity laws and about not being defiled and all of those things. So they would take... And the reason the Old Testament has those laws in place is, so, is, is, is to keep relationship with God going. 
It's because they believed that God was at the temple. And so, and so when you went into the temple, you had to do various uh, rituals in order to be made right or, or, or made clean to approach God. And what the Pharisees did is they took some of these temple laws out of the temple and applied them to everyday life. And, and, and the thing behind them was excellent. The, the motivation behind them was excellent. They didn't want anybody to be hindered, cut off, held back from their relationship with God. That's a great thing, isn't it? It's fantastic. They had brilliant motivation. And yet, their, their motivation was not based on Scripture. So there is nothing scriptural about having to wash your hands before you eat. But what they had done, out, it was like out of their overzealousness, if you like, was would say, well, you need to do that in order to, to eat, in order to maintain your relationship with God. And Jesus comes in and he literally kind of just, you know, he throws the rule book up in the air. As we read, as we carry on through this passage, through what he says, we, we get the, uh, the birth of the early church's teaching on food laws. And, and we read more of that in Paul and Peter in the book of Acts. Um, but the thing about tradition is this. Tradition helps us to feel safe. If you weren't at our church meeting last Sunday, you may not have yet heard that we are breaking with tradition. And we are, from the first Sunday of January, we are going to be meeting at 10.30 a.m. instead of 11.15 a.m. Okay? And, and, and some people will be like, oh! Dun, dun, dun! Douglas Gooding, who loves, where, and I, oh, I was going to say he loves a bit of tradition, but that's because I, I thought it was in. But he said to me this morning, I'm breaking with tradition. I'm running the cable down this side of the church. <laughs> he didn't even know what I was preaching on this morning. It was like a prophetic picture in the laying of the cable. But, but, the, but the serious thing is, is this. What does God care about? God cares about his people gathering together. It says in scripture, doesn't it? Do not stop meeting together. It doesn't say that you have to do it at 11, 15, 10, 30. It doesn't even say, I don't believe, that you have to do it on a Sunday. It just says, don't give up doing it as some people are in the practice of doing. And so meeting together, fantastic. Meeting together to worship, fantastic. Meeting together to break open the word, to pray, to celebrate, to, to just do life alongside each other, fantastic. But when the tradition gets in the way and says, well, we have to do it at this time, or we have to do it in this way, that's when the problems start to arise. Worship, fantastic. Does worship have to look like that? No. Teaching, fantastic. Does teaching have to look like this? No. Uh, and, and so what you see is that so often, though, we build our services around tradition. The number of folk who sometimes say to me that the preaching is the most important part of our gathering. And, you know, and obviously I agree wholly with that. And, you know, no, but it isn't. It is a part of what we do. And this is one way of doing it. And, and, and the problem that the Pharisees were encountering is that they wanted to honor God. So they, in our context, it would be they wanted to open the word. They wanted to worship. They wanted to do community. But they had got so caught in the rigidity of the way that they did it that they missed what God was doing right in front of them. The, I came across this quote during the week, and it says this, Losing traditions that make one feel safe and comfortable can cause great anxiety. But... Hanging on to traditions so that one becomes hard-shelled is fatal. 
I constantly perhaps over-analyze everything that we do and everything that I do. But the great thing that I want to fight against and believe that God calls us to fight against is reaching that point of being so hard-shelled, being so set in our ways that we die. It's not to say that change is easy. Change isn't easy. Change is challenging. But change keeps us alive. Whereas becoming so rigid that we can't move, can't do anything different leads only to one way, and that is death. So very quickly as we approach the end, not only does Jesus hold lightly to tradition, he reveals God's undeserved grace. And that's what we see in that encounter, that non-racist encounter with the Syrophoenician woman. Jesus reveals God's unmerited grace. And the amazing thing is that the woman completely gets it. Just a few seconds previously in in Mark's account anyway, just a few seconds previously, he said to his disciples, are you so dull? They didn't understand what he was saying. And then he goes into this Gentile area and he talks about how the children need their food before the dogs need their food. And the woman gets it completely and she says, yeah, but even the dogs get to eat the crumbs. And, And so what she's not saying is, well, actually, I'm a child. She doesn't say, well, I'm level with them, I'm equal with them, although we know from the whole breadth of Scripture that that would be true. But she doesn't say that. She doesn't say, but I deserve it as well. She, she agrees with Jesus' point. Yes, I am a dog, but the dog gets to eat the scraps from under the table. This woman, uh, in, in perhaps one of the most incredible ways that we can imagine, realizes her place before God. And it's something that all of us need to do. She realizes that before God she is nothing but a dog who gathers up scraps under the table but nevertheless even the scraps will sustain the dog and and in his response to the woman Jesus is is opening up the doors as he does in the next part of scripture to all people his, his main, the main focus, the main drive of Jesus' ministry is Israel, absolutely. But he throws the gates open when he, when he says things like this here, when he goes into the Gentile areas, and ultimately when he commissions the church before he ascends into heaven to go into all the world. Jesus is not ashamed of, of, the, of the focal point of his ministry, but we get these glimpses of him saying, It's not just for Israel, it is for all. And that is based only upon undeserved, unmerited grace. She accepts that she is unacceptable. Jesus' ministry reveals that God has not sent him to reward the deserving, but to serve the needy, whoever they are and wherever they may be found. God helps those who confess that they are needy and deserve nothing. In a moment's time, we're going to come to communion. And it's so perfect. There's an old Anglican prayer. I remember it from when I was a little boy. And um, it's one of the things that I can remember from church as a young, young child. And it says, um, I am not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under your table. It's such power. It's called the prayer of humble access. It's so powerful. We are not worthy to come to this table trusting in ourselves, trusting in anything of ourselves, but only in God's incredible grace.
very final thing, and if the band want to come up as I just say this, that would be brilliant. But Jesus unblocks our ears and gives us a new voice. As I said, you know, that picture from Isaiah is speaking of spiritual deafness, spiritual dumbness. And so we don't want to take away from the physical miracle that Jesus does in the life of the deaf and mute man. And yet it is pointing to something bigger. It is pointing to the God who wants to open our ears to who he is and open our eyes to who he is. Isn't it amazing that on the road to Emmaus, as Jesus broke bread, they saw him and recognized who he was. As we come to communion in a moment's time, may that be the same of us. May Jesus continue to teach us. May may Jesus continue to unblock our ears to all that he wants to say to us and to give us that voice that sings of who he truly is. Let's stand. We'll sing. If you could go out and get your children now, that would be brilliant. And we'll all come back together to take communion in a moment's time.